Well, it's awfully good to be with you this evening. Always good to be back and see so many familiar people. I appreciate my dad and Drew giving me this opportunity. When I, as I've said before, when I've preached these days, I only preach now and then, and so I tend to pull my lessons from classes that I've taught in recent years or months. And it's interesting, uh, Drew's lesson this morning dovetailed very closely with the class that's been going on, I've been helping teach with our preacher, Lawrence Kelly, that we call paradoxes and tensions in scripture. He didn't use that term, but this tension where things like boldness, confidence, and humility, at least superficially, seem to be pulling in different directions, and sometimes more than superficially seem to be pulling in different directions. But there's another part that we've been getting to in this class toward the tail end of it, and that's what I want to talk about this evening. And as a way of getting into that, I'm going to first pull up this first slide here, if I can. There we go. That most of you will recognize. Back when I was a boy, and many of you have already grown, the Wizard of Oz came on once a year, and it was a big deal. Now, unfortunately, it came on about Sunday night church time, so I very seldom got to see the whole thing. But if you remember this near-closing scene where the good witch Glinda is talking to Dorothy, and she's getting ready to go home, remember what she told Dorothy? You had the power to go home all along. Just click your heels together. And so both for the readers or watchers of this film, as well as Dorothy herself, her expectation got overturned. She thought, well, I've got to have some magical power that I didn't have. I've got to have this broomstick of the Wicked Witch. I've got to have these things. Another similar occasion is here in this picture, which is Some of you might recognize the film. There have been many films or plays based on this work by Shakespeare. This is the closing scene of the famous Romeo and Juliet. Some of you might have to remember way back, but if you've watched or seen that or read that, before you remember what happens at the end, Juliet has taken this elixir which makes her appear to be dead But she isn't really, but Romeo comes in and he thinks that she is dead. And he takes poison and kills himself. And then she awakens and finds him dead. And so she takes a dagger and kills herself. And in this case, again, the audience is ahead of the actors in this case. Shakespeare did this very frequently. He would put in situations where the audience could see what was coming but the participants could not. And so the participants, what they thought was working out was not what really how it got worked out. And the last one is a little different. Rather than a movie or a film or a book, this comes from a song that we're all familiar with. This book is based on the life of John Newton, who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. And one of the lines in that hymn speaks to this these days we call it subversion of expectations. Something happening that you would not have expected for a slave trader like John Newton. Remember that phrase? I was blind, but now I see. 
well, he wasn't literally lying, but he's saying when I was a slave trader, I thought I could see, but I was truly blind. And it came, as the grace of God came to me, I began to truly see. Well, you might say, well, what in the world do any of those things have to do with Scripture? Well, I would say the, this device, which is so common in books and in films, I've avoided using the term that all of us probably heard in English or lit class is referred to as irony. When our expectations of how things are going to work out don't play out that way. I, and I avoid that, at least to begin with, because... So many of us have negative feelings about that word. You think, oh, irony. My wife, when we were talking about this in our Bible class, she had that reaction. She goes, oh, I'm not very excited about this. And maybe that's all of English and lit teachers. We used to have one hikes with us here. Many of you would have known her. She was a junior English teacher at Mount Pleasant High School. I had her, Brenda, I had her. I, she was a very good teacher. I think she made the subject about as interesting as you could. But in spite of that, sometimes we're reading things that weren't interesting to us. And things like irony, we thought, well, that's just something you've got to remember for the test. But the Bible is filled with this overturning of expectations. In fact, you could say God is a God of irony. And I, I want to begin tonight just by going through some Old Testament examples to just give you an idea of how extensively this is used in Scripture. For instance, you think, think about Abraham. Where do we see Abraham, his own expectations? And if you're reading this for the first time, you see things happening that you would never expect to happen. Well, Sarah's 90 years old and she has a child. Sarah didn't expect that. Abraham didn't expect that. But that's how God brought about the They've given up in many ways. They thought, we're going to have to work out this promise God gave us on our own. But God surprised them. And then later, he says, sacrifice the very son that I've given you through this miraculous working. And yet, we see again, God overturns Abraham's expectation. We see in the life of Joseph. I think I put two up here once. Joseph's life is filled with this. He's the favored son who is sold into slavery. He works to become the favored servant who is thrown into prison. And then he becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. Again, who thinks that God is going to save Jacob and his family by making Joseph a slave and then a servant and then a prisoner and then a ruler of Egypt? Moses. Who would have said, I'm going to save my people of Israel by putting a baby in the Nile River? That always struck me as, well, I, I, I would be a little afraid of crocodiles. You know, if I'd have been Miriam, I thought, well, you can give that job to somebody else. Uh, I don't want to be following along in the Nile River. But Moses, in his own life, what did Moses do when he was 40? What was he expecting? that God was going to save Israel through him. He wasn't wrong about that, but what was he wrong about? Well, the timing, 40 years off, that neither Israel nor Moses was ready by God's reckoning then. God took Moses and prepared him 
40 years as a shepherd to lead the people out. Again, you talk about irony. That's quite an irony. You see the life of Rahab. Which one of us, which one of the people of God's children at the time would have said, you know, we're going to be really assisted by this Canaanite prostitute. In fact, this Canaanite prostitute is going to exhibit much more faith than 10 of the spies that went into Jericho 40 years earlier. We see it again in the life of Samson. Yeah, this upside-down strong man turns to his lust and desires. He's weakened, but it's in his weakness that what happens? He becomes truly faithful and strong in God's eyes. And he appears then in Hebrews as one of the heroes of faith. Ruth is somewhat similar to Rahab. Once, she's a woman in a story dominated by men, but Ruth, what's her story? Who would have thought a Moabitess would become a symbol of goodness during a period of darkness of the judges? That she would be the one to help her mother-in-law. That through her union with Boaz, she becomes an ancestor of David, king of Israel, and ultimately of Jesus Christ. David himself. I mean, who would... When Samuel went to the household of Jesse, as God told him to, who did Jesse, excuse me, who did Samuel think God would select? One of his older sons. And they worked their way down and finally said, well, none of these are the one. Who else is there? Both Jesse and Samuel were surprised by God's choice of the youngest. And that youngest son, then, what does he go on to do? The nation of Israel, army of Israel, is cowered in front of this giant. And yet, the young man or adolescent David, he's the one that with his slaying, and stone, who, who would think about slaying the nine-foot giant with a sling and a stone and a boy? Well, that's how God works. Solomon is, is, has all sorts of you know, upside-down stuff. He has for wisdom. He becomes this very wise man who writes books like Proverbs, or many of them. But then what happens? He becomes foolish in his wisdom. And he ultimately writes, at least he seems to be the focus of the book of Ecclesiastes, where he discusses this foolishness that he went down. A couple more. One is Jonah. Again, Jonah becomes, you know, he, he goes, he, he's struck by God's overturning his expectations. He's thinking Assyria's wife. Nineveh and Assyria, well, they're the enemy of anybody who cares about God. They're out destroying nations. They like to destroy us. But God says, no, you're going to go preach to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I don't like that idea. I'm going the opposite direction. Well, God said, I'm going to prepare a whale or a great fish. <laughs> and then ultimately when Jonah gets there, what happens? There's, he's out in the hot sun. This plant grows up. And then it withers. And he's all upset because of what? Well, 
hey, what, what happened to my shade? And the Lord uses that to show him, well, you've been upset about the saving of Nineveh. You know, yeah, you, they don't deserve this, but you didn't deserve the shade either. But yet you benefited and you wanted it. And the last one, we might retitle instead of the book of Esther, we might call it the book of irony. Again, we're, we're a little bit like the audience in Romeo and Juliet. We can begin seeing the unfolding here. Haman thinks he's going to do what? Destroy the nation of Israel. And instead, what happens? He's hung on the very gallows that he intended to kill Mordecai. That's this overturning of expectation. And I, this doesn't nearly exhaust it. I, I just cover these to try to begin getting you to realize that, okay, this isn't just some trumped-up idea. Okay, well, let's have something to talk about on Sunday night. This runs through Scripture extensively. And in many cases, it seems to me God is injecting things for the very purpose just like writers in our literature film, of getting our attention, getting us to connect with the people involved, getting us to see the power of his hand. But some of it, and this goes along with that, but some of it is not just him injecting it. Much of this irony arises because of the difference between who God is and who we are. His outlook versus our outlook naturally brings about situations where he's working in ways that we don't expect. And not just you and me, but some of the most faithful people in in the Bible, they don't expect God to be working the way he ends up working. And that's caused us to step back. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. I I brought my sippy cup with me here. I, I have a little voice issue. The two people I want to talk about, well, the first of these, a little bit more in depth, (coughs) is first, Saul of Tarsus. In the New Testament, (coughs) I think he's one of the figures that most highlights this way God works in opposition to the way we would think he In fact, the book of Acts, you know, this sort of second part of Luke, is all about God acting in ways you wouldn't expect. I mean, what happens at the beginning and the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts? Well, Jesus rises from the dead. He walks with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're shocked. Then you get to chapter 1 and 2. By the time you get to chapter 2, what's Peter and the other apostles? What are they doing? They're proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as the risen Savior. Chapter 4, Peter and John are proclaiming that message to the very council that put Jesus to death. And this is just days and weeks after what, what had Peter been doing? Denying that he knew Jesus. And the council is taken back. They go, well, these are fishermen. How are they speaking like this? Well, again, this, we wouldn't expect fishermen to so eloquently, powerfully stand before the very leaders of Israel and proclaim Jesus of Nazareth as the risen Savior. 
But that engenders enemies too. And God ends up picking Saul of Tarsus. And through him, working his plan and his message. And most of the people here are very well acquainted with who Saul of Tarsus was. I just want to remind us of some of these facts. Luke tells us in Acts 8 and 9, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. He was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's father. In Acts 26, appearing before Agrippa, Paul himself says, when Christians were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I tried to force them, again, kids, what he said, I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, I was a blasphemer and a pute persecutor and a violent man. Yes, he says, also along with this, that he was sincere. You know, he's ignorant. But he adds with that, I did it in unbelief. There's nothing admirable about unbelief, but at least he wasn't saying, well, I really thought Jesus was Christ, but I thought my position was too good to give up. He said, I, I sincerely thought I was doing the right thing, but I was unbelieving, I was a persecutor, I was violent. He was hateful. He was trying to make people deny Jesus and killing them or putting them in prison if they would not. Think about it. I had not thought about this before we taught this class. When he went to Damascus, who would he have been searching out to put, to bring drag back to Jerusalem? Well, we don't know many of them, but one person, we do know. His name was Ananias. He would have been known to the leaders in Jerusalem. He was one of the foremost Jewish people in Damascus, but he had become a believer. And think about that. Here's Paul on the road to Damascus to bring Ananias back, and what happens? He ends up blind in an Ananias' house asking what do I need to do? And that leads to be him becoming, instead of the arch enemy of Jesus Christ, the messenger of Jesus Christ. He says in First Timothy 1, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Jesus Christ could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Now, again, sometimes I think we take Paul's statement of saying, well, I found grace because I did this in ignorance of unbelief. Well, you know, Paul was really a good guy. Paul was not a good guy. Paul was sincere. That's a, as far as the goodness could go. Think about it. What advice did his master, his mentor, in Jewish faith, what advice did Gamaliel give? Let's step back and see what happens with this Christianity. If God is for it, we can't stop it. If God is against it, then it'll fizzle out. God will stop it. Paul decided, I'm not listening even, forget about Jesus Christ, I'm not listening to the man I've respected my whole life, Gamaliel. He's some old fogey who doesn't get it now. We got to get out and stamp out this business. 
He calls himself the worst of sinners. He calls himself a murderer and a blasphemer, a violent man. He is not a good man. And yet, he says, he was his wife. Why did God choose Saul of Tarsus? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons. But one of the main reasons he stated here. Could anyone now say, I'm worse than Paul? Do you imagine Paul ever lost the image of Stephen being stoned? Think about it. Stoning was a brutal thing. Pounding someone to death with rocks was a brutal way to die. And Saul witnessed that and gave his consent to it. And I think when he writes passages like 1 Timothy 1 here, I think he's got, he has that in mind. But more than this, his testimony of his conversion. You know what? The book of Acts, you think, well, this is sort of the story of the life of Paul. But why is Paul in there so prominently? Well, Luke is writing to Theophilus. He seems to be a Roman official. But I think we all can think of it as writing through Theophilus to people that would be Theophilus' friends, Roman officials, other Romans, other Greeks. And it's a way of saying, you know, who would these people have heard of? Related to Christianity. Well, Jesus of Nazareth and Paul. And they both would have been viewed by Romans as criminals. One was crucified by the Romans. The other one's in prison. And Luke is saying, yes, Paul is in prison. But did you know he started out as the arch enemy of Jesus? There was no one trying to persecute Christians more than Paul. And here's his story. Here's why he's in prison. This conversion of Paul, there's no other than the resurrection itself, there is no greater testimony to the truth of the gospel than Saul of Tarsus. But in addition to that, think about other aspects of Paul and what he writes. You know, think in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to Satan, this messenger of Satan that had been given to him, a thorn in the flesh. That he, that was serious enough, he said he prayed to God, pleading three times that God would take it away. Remember what the Lord said to him? No, my grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient. Paul goes on to say, when I am weak, I am strong. Again, that's this upside down. Is that how we, even not just people of the world, but even as Christians, is that how we really think that God is out in many ways to use not what I view as my great strings, but God is out to let me use trials and weakness and troubles as a way for me to witness to others by faith. And Paul goes on to say, he didn't just give it to witness to others, Paul. He gave it so Paul himself could be saved, so that he wouldn't become conceited because of the 
unusually incredible things that Paul had seen. You know, he prefers to make odd up into the third heaven and seeing things that he's not even permitted to speak about. In addition, think about Paul and in prison. Who would have picked his imprisonment as the way to expand the gospel message? Paul himself would have never picked this. And yet, by the time you get to 1 Timothy, Paul is saying about his imprisonment that even though I'm in change, the gospel is not changed. That people in Caesar's own household have been become believers because of my message. Letters like Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians are written by Paul in prison and have become influences on people for hundreds of years, for centuries. But which one of us would have chosen, well, this is the way we're going to work it out. But that's how God chose. The last thing I want to mention about Paul is it's not just his message that has changed, but his whole method. You know, I've read First Corinthians 13, I've done our three or four weddings of my life and often used it in one way or another. And, you know, the words are beautiful, but they're a little bit abstract. They're sort of hanging in the air. You know, you, you should treat your wife or your husband. You know, you should, you know, be long-suffering and patient and kind. But think about Paul. His life becomes, and his whole manner, comes to embody a whole different approach. What was his approach when he was still in Judaism? I'm going to force people not to say things. I'm going to kill them or imprison them if they don't. He refers to himself as an insolent man or a violent man. The word there means an insult, a vilifier. Paul, was, the man was filled with hate for Christians. He wanted to hurt Christians. Now, you know, you can find writings, pieces of his writings where he says pretty strong things like, hey, these circumcisers are dogs. But that doesn't fill up the pages of Paul's letters. Instead, what's Paul doing? Paul is not writing 1 Corinthians 13. He's living 1 Corinthians 13. Think about Paul in prison. Living the idea and telling others who are worrying about, well, what's going to happen to you, Paul? What's going to happen to Christianity? How should we react to this? Well, here's how we react. By letting good overcome evil. By promoting love instead of hate. By remembering that love suffers all. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love puts up with all sorts of things. It seeks the truth. It keeps going. As one film puts it, that kind of love. And I would ask all of us here, do we really believe that? That's upside down from the world. Do we really believe that love conquers evil? That love overcomes hate. That good is stronger than evil. Or do we feel like, well, social media posts and just talking at the dinner table and hateful to 
owns and thinking negative thoughts in my head, is that how we're going to overcome evil of the world? Or is it by embodying the very things that Paul embodied, this change that's so dramatic and so ironic? But of course, there's nothing more subversive to people's expectations than Jesus' own life and his death. Think about Jesus of Nazareth. What if you start out, we, won't, we can't cover all of Jesus' life here, but if you begin at his beginning, at his incarnation, how does this begin? Who's he born to? A young, you know, probably someone in the neighborhood of 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old peasant girl who's a virgin. Well, that, that, that pretty much sets it on a course to be <laughs> not according to expectations. But then, where is he born? In a little town in Judea, in a state. Angels sing to shepherds, not to kings, that unto you a Savior is given. Unto you the Son of David is born in a major. And he goes through his life then, constantly overturning people's expectations about what Messiah is going to be, and look like, and say, and do. And then he arrives at the ultimate subversion, the cross of Christ. Paul writes about this. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world, we could add in pretty much everybody, have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. And then he adds, quoting Isaiah, that is what those scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying that's the cross of Christ. No eye has seen. Nobody has imagined this is how God is going to save humanity. You know, remember, Jesus said, in the parable of the rich man at Lazarus, as that unfolds, he says, you know, even though someone rises from the dead, the rich man wanted someone to go back and warn his brothers. He said, well, though someone rises from the dead, they won't believe them. Well, he was right. I think the rich man said, well, no, no, they'll believe. Lazarus himself, um, a person named Lazarus, was raised from the dead, and they tried to kill him. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. But the cross, I think, represents the thing that nobody can see coming. You know, you think about it, there at the foot of the cross stood his mother, Peter, James, John, the closest of the apostles, the other 11, all 11 apostles, his Mary Magdalene, other women and others who followed him. Which one of them could see that this is the path by which God is saving humanity? The only person, this old another lesson, but the whole only person who somehow got it 
was this criminal being crucified with him. I mean, it's, that's, that's part of the irony itself. It's, you, you think about this, Jesus on the cross, not only at the cross overall, but things that happen or said at the cross, think about it, as Jesus has just been nailed to the cross by these Roman soldiers and lifted up, that tree placed in the hole. What does he say? Now, he says, you know, we often take this as being said to the, all the crowd, and maybe it was, but one could think the words he's uttering are really directed toward these Roman soldiers who are physically the ones crucifying him. What does he say? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. These Roman soldiers had no idea that they were nailing the Son of God to a tree. As was read this morning, the centurion probably is sort of a pagan twist on it, but it seems to have some idea that, wait a minute, this was no ordinary human. This was a Son of God. A song that I came across last fall with my dad, I was driving down to Tyler for his knee replacement, and just happened to come on the radio that morning I think condenses these ideas and the irony of it in very powerful words. It says, you made a hill called Calvary where you made a way for me. You made the man that drove nails in your hands. You even made the tree. Think about that. We have a God, yes, a God who loves, a God who saves, but how is he saved by submitting to his very creation. I don't know how you describe subverting expectations any more than that. The God that created the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ, that John said, was with God and was God in the beginning. He came here, but the world did not recognize him. In fact, the world put him on a cross, and he let his own creation nailing to cross so that he could save us through that mechanism. Abraham, Moses, David, the greatest people of faith of the Bible, I don't think anyone would have seen that coming. And so there are many lessons. As we've gone through, there are many things you might extract from this about how maybe we should think and act. But I want to just quickly talk about three things. The first is these kinds of subversion expectations, the, the way God acts should cause us to stand in awe of God. Yes, his powerful creative ability is great power and love, but the fact that he just does things that no as Isaiah said, Paul quoted, no one could imagine. Who imagines that the creator saves by submitting to his own creation? You know, one writer writing about these sorts of things said, you know, as we grow up and become adults, irony tends to kind of slap us in the face, you know, kind of get our attention, and that's useful. But he said, in many ways, we probably need to become more like children. Children begin to understand irony as they discover the world. Hey, I, I didn't expect this 
caterpillar to become a butterfly. And how does it affect children? There's a wonder. They begin to appreciate this. This is really something. It gives them a feeling of warmth and encouragement. And that's partly, I think, what God is doing here. He wants us to see him as something much greater than ourselves. Which leads, and is closer related to the point number two, that I think one of the things as I was studying up for this that struck me is that you cannot overemphasize the importance of humility. Now, as Drew talked about this morning, I think we need to correctly understand humility. You know, see it as seeing ourselves in the right perspective doesn't mean we never confident in anything. <laughs> but seeing ourselves on the right perspective, a big part of that or the basis of that is seeing God at the center, not me at the center. And there's an irony in the fact that, look, Satan uses pride throughout our whole lives, but I think he especially sometimes uses it as we start becoming adults, you know, that we tend to be often self-centered, self-absorbed. We think the world is centered on us. But the irony of this is I think Satan also is pride maybe as his temptation of last resort. Think about this was the very thing, very reason that Paul was left with a thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't become prideful and conceited. And there are many, you know, I'm, I'm 61 now, but I'm not nearly the oldest person in this room looking over it. You know, many of you are considerably older than that. And I would say, this is a temptation as we get older. I'm already beginning to sense it, that we begin to think, well, we pretty much have it down now. You know, that I may not be prideful in the way of sort of a totally self-absorbed 20-something, but we begin to think, well, I've lived a while now. I, I, I see how God operates. I've got it. But think about it. Abraham, Moses. He, Abraham was 100 years old, and he didn't see what God was doing, how that was going to come about. That leads me to my last point, and there are different ways of saying this. Some you know, people say faith is... Uh, trip, not a destination. Faith is a bus, not a bus stop. That whether we're 20-something or 60, 70, 80-something, we should not think of faith as a place that we've just arrived at. And should understand that getting on God's wavelength, seeing things the way God sees them, is a never-ending. And we will never fully get there. I don't care what age we are. I don't care how much the Bible we've memorized. We will never get to a point where, okay, I see it just at best. God has given us great helps in Scripture to help us see him and see his ways and learn more about him. And we have advantages that Abraham and David and Moses and the apostles didn't have. We can look on their stories and draw from them. But that still doesn't mean we got it all. And our, if God came in the flesh today, do any of us doubt that he would do and say things that would 
overturn what would be some of our expectations. And so, you know, let us be humble. Let's keep, as long as we have the mental faculties to keep growing, let's see faith as a process of growth, not as a thing to just, well, I've arrived and I've got it. I appreciate your good attention, and I hope these things will help you grow in your faith and appreciate for God's studying this help me if you need this evening to come and confess Jesus as Lord and be baptized into him or pray for his help and guidance and forgiveness we ask you to do that as we stand and sing so Tender pleading, hear his gracious come to me. He is calling, softly calling on thy name. His voice is calling, he is calling, softly calling, come to me and be at rest. Come to me.